Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains growing. Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we got to deal with a very big, very important large story um jones world jones world was a i guess a loosely connected sequel to second variety it's it's not a straight up sequel it doesn't have like the same characters but it's it's set in the same universe and that's pretty uncommon in dick's fiction as i said before in a previous episode there's not really a lot of overlap between these different universes there's certain i guess thematic parallels often but there's really a unique world in almost every story and novel that Dick wrote. Uh, but here's a, a rare direct sequel. It was originally published in the anthology Thing to Come in 1954. And I think this is his first anthology publication. Everything else was published in, in story, you know, science fiction, fantasy magazines. But this came out in an anthology. And you can find it in the second volume of The Collected Stories of Philip K. Dick. The Total Recall or the We Can Remember for You Wholesale volume. It's a long story. It's about 30 pages, making it, uh, I think it might be a second longest story up to this point, uh, only outpaced by the novella Variable Man. So since this is a long one, there's a lot to say about this. I'm going to jump into it. But I, I will just preview it in one short way by saying this is, if if Variable Man is his cornerstone piece about the frontier and creativity and, and the value of, of human creative labor, then this is maybe his foundational text on the alternate reality story. And it has some actually interesting parallels with The Variable Man, which uh, I'll probably get into. So anyways, the, the plot. So we have uh, Kastner and Caleb Ryan uh, are reviewing a recently completed time machine. It works, but it has this unfinished look. It's, it has functional but unattractive knobs. It's not a very beautiful thing. It's like a prototype, right? So it doesn't look that nice, but it, it seems to function. Krasner tells him, tells Ryan that he'll accompany him on this mission because he always wanted to see what things were like before the war. So we have a post-war environment, and it turns out it's the war against the synthetics, the war that's described in the final days of the war described in Second Variety. And you, you read Second Variety and you assume that humanity is destroyed. The, la the final scene seems to be the claw, this kind of robot, sneaking into the final bastion of humanity, the moon base. Um, but apparently that's not what happened. Humanity survived, survived the war, but the whole earth is devastated and, and life's horrible. So they want to go back and see what life was like before the war. But um, he was also function as a representative of the United Synthetic Industries com Combine, which backed the project. So we got a kind of a corporate state cooperation in developing this time machine. Now, Ryan is requested back at his host because of an attack his son has suffered. Like a, not a, not a physical attack, but like a, a health or a mental thing. So he goes home on an intercity ship and observes the damage from the war. The cities were built from, it's, it's kind of fascinating, they're on Earth. But during the war, humans all kind of escaped to the moon 
and they came back and they brought back all this material from the moon. Most of the surface of the planet was devastated by the war, so they're kind of a lot of the buildings are kind of shacky, they're slummy, they're they're a bit ramshackle, built by these different materials. Uh, basically salvaged from the lunar bases. Now during the war, humanity sur endure, survived on the moon while the claws, which were man-made and autonomous machines, struggled for domination over the planet. And, and here's the real clue we have that this is a sequel to Second Variety, the mentioning of, I think they mentioned directly the word claws. Now all the cities are new because everything's destroyed on Earth, so he goes to city four. There's no remnant of the old cities left. Everything is artificial. He goes to city four. They're really creative with the names in the rebuilt Earth. He enters his quarters and he discusses the situation with an old man who is seen to his son, like a doctor or some kind of physician. The old man reports that the attack involved his son taking, talking in another voice, right? almost like he has a split personality. In a mature tone, the boy, John, begins talking to his father about the progress on the time ship. And he's not talking like a child, right? I think it might be John's voice, but he's talking in this seriousness, this assertiveness that you'd expect not in a child, but, but in a grown, grown man. And he talks about something that, you know, it's like serious work stuff, about the progress on the time machine. John reminds his father that the attacks are visions. They're more real than the world around him, he says. They're not fantasies. They're not, you know, made up. Now, of course, if someone with some kind of mental disorder, you know, tells us their attacks are real, we probably won't believe them. If we're in a story, we might say, well, you should believe them, right? Obviously, the character should believe them. But in our world, when people say that, you know, the fantasy I have, the visions I'm having are real, of course, we tend to think they're not all there. He tells them the devastated world they live in is not real. Ryan is concerned about these attacks because they suggest a return to the irrational days of humanity's infancy and youth because the images you get from these visions are not of an advanced industrial progressive culture. They're of like of a backward agrarian culture. That's what John is envisioning. He says that's the real world. The real world we live in is this agrarian paradise, essentially. But the scientist... Technocrat Ryan hates that idea. He wants to have this progressive civilization, even though he knows that it was industrial progress, robotics, AI that led to the near destruction of humanity. John explains that in his visions, Earth is a pastoral paradise with animals of all things. Is this this is not the first time he talks about animals, but this is a major theme in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Is the, you know, that animals don't exist. I mean, they even got that right to a degree in Blade Runner with the robotic owls and things. Uh, it's not as much of a theme in the movie as it was in the book. But it's an important thing. And, you know, Dick does seem to mourn the, the sixth extinction. I don't, I don't know if the language of the sixth extinction was there yet, but, you know, certainly now we have no excuse. Um, but address this face, you know, head on. People live in this world that Joan, John, not Jones, John envisions as an agrarian society without factories, no business, and no commerce. Now, due to his upcoming trip, Ryan is convinced that he's got to commit his son to a lobotomy. Now, this sounds horrific to us, but remember, lobotomies were not uncommon forms of treatment in the 1950s. So Wikipedia teaches us the lobotomy was developed in 1949. So it's actually a post-war thing. And what it basically did is it's, it takes out part of your brain, 
Um, and it says here from Wikipedia, the use of the procedure increased dramatically from the early 40s. Oh, sorry, the 49 was the year the guy got the Nobel Prize for de developing it. So it was actually developed earlier. Anyways, um, in the early 40s and early in, in into the 1950s, by 1951, almost 20,000 lobotomies were performed in the United States alone. The majority of lobotomies were performed on women. 74% were on women. Um, of course, women were kind of often seen historically to have their own set of mental illnesses. Hysteria was, was a common one. So there was all kinds of sexist evil tied up in, in the lobotomies. So, yeah, I, I don't know if they still happen. I'm sure there's still some people who get them from time to time because they might really need them. But the idea that they will like, cure your mental illness by scooping out part of your brain, I think is out of fashion to say the least. So John gets the lobotomy, and this ends his visions. Ryan returns uh, to his plans for the time trip. The goal is to secure the papers of the scientist Kronerman. He developed artificial brains using the claws. This technology was lost when the claws were destroyed. Ryan repeats his concern that reviving this technology might bring the claws back. So Ryan, despite being a fetishist for technology and progress, seems to be smart enough to know what we're thinking as readers, that you don't want to bring back a technology that almost destroyed the world without some safeguards and protections. But Kastner insists that the technology is value neutral, and the only thing that matters is how the technology is used. Now this is still a debate that goes on today, isn't it? That you know, those who say that it's all about how we use technology, right? There's nothing, nuclear power, for instance, it's just nuclear power and it could be good or it could be bad. Others say, no, that's, it's fundamentally dangerous. It's letting genie out of the bottle, right? Or other technologies like the cell phone become more ambiguous, right? Is, it seems to have a lot of uses, but is it on the whole better for us or not? We like to think we have control over our technologies, but I'm not sure we do. Um, and What's, what's the story I'm thinking about that this, this question is dealt with? Oh, uh, some kinds of life, right? We're, which is a story about how like really technology is, leads these people to war and wars for resources. Anyway, so this is an important debate and something we, we still have to work out. And there's not really a clear idea of how we could impose democratic controls on technologies in a, in a free market society. But... You know, we control substances all the time. We control LSD, so I suppose it's possible. But we, we know we never have those debates about cell phones or, or computers or, or surveillance technologies or something. And certainly in the cyberpunk genre talks about how you're going to have, this technology is going to just become democratized eventually and go everywhere. It's not really, you can't be constrained any more than drugs for that matter. Well, anyways, um, they go on their fine. They make arrangements for Ryan makes arrangements for his son's care. They leave on the time ship with Ka he leaves on the time ship with Kastner. Now, during the trip, Ryan and Kastner discuss the first submarine used in the American Revolution, um, which I think is true. Yeah, there there were there were very basic very basic things, basically like the bell over your head kind of thing. But they were using them to um, as a surveillance, I guess. And here we get 
this, you know, technology is not stoppable. They are essentially like the first people using a submarine, right? Using time machine. But they start to talk about the issues involved in, in time travel and whether it, you know, what's the long-term consequences of this. They stop at a point in time when the war against the clause was still going on. And they observed a unit of the wounded soldier type clause. Now this is, if you go back to second variety, this is one of the ways the clause started to get humans. When humans identified the clause, they remade themselves into like the wounded soldier. So people would go to help the wounded soldier and then they'd be killed by it. They were used to infiltrate bunkers too. Ryan explains how the lunar base survived the clause because the four types were identified and the survivors took precautions against them. So that's some happy ending to Second Variety. I don't know if that weakens Second Variety as a story. I mean, you could still read Second Variety and come out of it thinking humanity's doomed. But this story kind of retcons that a little bit. Um, gives the humans a way out. Because I guess Dick was really fascinated with this idea and wanted to develop it. So he had to do a little bit of retconning. Okay, so they make another stop, go farther back in time, and nearly avoid being attacked by the military, which they're not sure is the Soviet or the UN. Those were the two initial human group factions fighting. Now, they, these are like the observation points they use going back in time. But with that, Ryan and Castron leave the ship, and they're a few miles from the village where Schonerman worked. Using a newspaper, they confirm that they're a few months too early. It's September 2030. Schonerman is still unprotected because his work would not be released, but there is a military presence to worry about. So Ryan and Kastner discuss the development of the war some more, especially they talk about how the clause developed autonomy and turned on humanity. Schonerman himself was disgusted with the way his work was used for war making. Schonerman must not be harmed, only his papers must be taken. They agree. So what do we have here? We, Of course, the after the nuclear bomb was developed, many of the scientists involved in the bomb making said you know we shouldn't develop these anymore we should get away with it so the scientist movement of the early, late 40s early 50s was led by scientists many of whom had worked on the bomb and knew how destructive it is and thought that the best world would be one without it in fact the propaganda piece they put together is called one world or none where they actually suggest that a humanity that has nuclear weapons can't survive so they go in to try to steal the documents. I think they have to wait a bit till all the documents are ready. But then they try to steal these documents, which show the development of this technology. And they're stopped by guards. They manage to escape, but in the scuffle, which involves shooting and fighting, Skonerman is hit. They escape to the time machine with the stolen documents. Ryan begins to worry that they have inadvertently altered the continuum. Now, they of course stole documents. I, unless there was copies of it. I suppose there was computer copies. You know, they seem to be, they're changing it already. But certainly by hurting Skonerman, they, they seem to be changing the timeline. Their goal was to get the technology to create artificial brains. And the, the, what they want to do here is help reclaim Earth. They think you're going to need robots. We're going to need all this labor. And humanity was almost destroyed, so we're going to need this labor to reclaim Earth. But they fear they may have altered history entirely. They travel one week into the future using the time machine and steal a news magazine. It talks about the war and about their raid on the base, and it's revealed that Schoenerman, in fact, did die in the blast. Kastner assumes it will be fine because someone else will develop the technology. Once you know, It's kind of the idea that once a genie's out of the bottle in terms of technology, it can't be restrained, right? It's, it's a proliferation idea. It's the, the individual inventor is not as important as the aggregate of technological advances. 
They advance in the time machine to 2051, which is the first year the claws appeared. In the changed timelines, there are no claws, but the war ends abruptly due to a counter-revolution in Russia. Kind of um, the opposite of, of, of 1917. Russia leaving a war because of a counter-revolution rather than a revolution. They ask the soldier about the claws, and the soldier mentions an effort by an English scientist to develop automated minds, but that, that research didn't go anywhere. Ryan realizes that Schonerman's death, combined with the loss of his papers, made it impossible for anyone else to carry on his research. Moving ahead in time, they learn that humans focus their energies on development instead of war. Ryan fears that he and his family will no longer exist. They go back to the original timeline and they find the world that corresponded exactly with the visions that John had before the lobotomy. At the time, as the time ship comes closer to being completed, John's visions became sharper and more realized, and that reality that would be created by the fact that the time machine exists would became realer and realer in John's mind. Kastner destroys Schonerman's notes before Ryan can take them back and restore the timeline. Kastner seems to want to come to terms with living in this alternate timeline and mentions seeking out some people to discuss metaphysics with. He's a philosopher. He's the guy who initiates all the philosophical arguments and the talks in this, this um, um, story. He wonders if the visions and speculations of medieval mystics were actually glimpses into another timeline, which is something I'm sure Dick is, is fascinated by. So that's the story. It, we have sort of a happy ending. It's not happy for Ryan, who loses his family and, and all that. But in the end, a better world was created by the destruction of a technology. And I think that is as far as we need to go, really, in the analysis, I suppose. The destruction of, of a technology that's devastating uh, could, could create another world. It's not that we always need to embrace the newest thing, the newest technology. Sometimes it's a matter of, of turning our back on that technology, which can create a better world. Of course, I, I do have more to say about this, though. Um, in John's world, we see Dick display the metaphysical speculation that has helped make him such a popular writer. Now, I'm not a fan of this kind of what's the real world behind the world we live in thing. I, I do think there are multiple competing realities, but I think they're always coexisting. At times, I think even in Dick's work, you see this. Um, and there are facades, there's false fronts, but I, I want to sort of believe there is a reality there. And, you know, and I just said in the last episode about history being always constructed. And yeah, but I still think we can do better than giving people false history. I, I think we can find a more accurate past if, if we work at it and, a, and a, an interpretation that's liberatory rather than one that in, ensnares us. Um, but it's really well done in this story, the alternate timeline thing. The plot here centers on a boy deemed by society to be mentally ill, who was actually able to see the world as it would be in greater and greater clarity due to the development of a technology, in this case, time travel. It's not explained why John had these visions. Um, is he a mutant? That, that might be. He might be a... Wouldn't it be a precog? You might, might something, some kind of mutant. But the success of the lobotomy suggests that whatever the cause is, it's physiological, right? They were able to remove part of his brain and his vision stopped. Um, so what's the issue here? Either we're in universe A or we're in universe B. Or we're in universe C or universe D. I, I mean, I just don't quite see the end of it. 
that's part of my problem with this. Is it is there eventually the true reality underneath it all? I mean, take Man in High Castle, right? Is it an A or B? Is it either the world they think they live in, where the Nazis win, or is it the world described in The Grasshopper Lies Heavy? Which, if you read closely The Man in High Castle, you'll, you'll know that what's described in The Grasshopper Lies Heavy is not, in fact, the history that we remember about the about World War II. It's a little bit different. There's some, yeah, the Allies win, but they win in a different way. Or is it like what we remember is a true one, and both The Grasshopper Lies Heavy and the history described in the by or experienced by the characters in the Man in High Castle, both might be false. Right? I, you know, now at a fundamental level, we're either aware of the universe we're in or we're not. In either case, does this change how we live our lives? We have to live our lives as if we're in the world we're in. Just it's like the the Matrix thing or the the simulation. If we're in a simulation, big deal at the end of the day, right? We have to go to work still. I mean, it's not a choice not to go to work or not to care for our family or just to drink all day. I mean, what's even the point of that if we're in a simulation? We still kind of have to go through or live our lives as if this is the real world we're in. Anyways, enough on that. This is this story, though, is well done. I, I, I actually kind of like this story, partially because of the vision it presents about technology and a, a better world. John's world is set some years or decades after Second Variety. We left that tale convinced that the claws would find their way into the lunar base, killing all the survivors. Dick backs away from this. As I said, he kind of retcons it, retcons at least the brutal conclusion, and has several million human survivors on the moon winning the war against the claws, aided by the fact that the claws began fighting each other. This does not in itself weaken the power of Second Variety. John's world not only undoes that pessimistic ending, it goes for a total reboot and it gives the potential. It, by changing the past, we get a whole different history for, for humanity. So Second Variety, I guess, never takes place. By the end of the story, the clause never even existed. The Soviets lost the war through an old-fashioned coup at home and the world rebuilt itself with a non-technological philosophical society. And that's what really fascinates Kastner about this world and one reason he wants to stay there. John's visions are certainly preferable to the near extinction of human life, the destruction of plant and animals, and the desperate efforts to reclaim Earth with a handful of survivors. Yet the world that replaces it is an idealized version of the Middle Ages. And this is maybe a, 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 a Philip Dickian fetish of, of his, like the Middle Ages. He, he, he thought, he always kind of wanted to go back to the early modern or middle, late Middle Ages. That was his ideal world. And there's a few points in his work where he really seems to point to this part, this life is, is ideal. Even in, in Variable Man, even though that character is more 19th century, there's this idea that like some working with your hands, a pre-technological world. I mean, I guess that's what the early modern is. It's that crux between the technological and the, and the agrarian. Now, there is much to speak about this world. It was collectively lived. You had the commons. You had uh, kind of a more collective ownership of land, this idea that we're all owned by the land and, and we're, we're granted it by God to work and therefore we shouldn't have private ownership of the commons. It's pre-capitalistic, so we don't have the privations and inequalities of capitalism. Uh, of course, you have the inequalities of feudalism to deal with, but whatever. 
Now, here's how John predicts the world. He goes, quote, men and women in robes walking along the path, along the trees. The air is fresh and sweet, the sky bright blue. Birds, animals, animals moving through the parks, butterflies, oceans, lapping oceans of clear water, end quote. So it's, it's certainly presented in a very nice way. Now, instead of going back, instead of going back to the Middle Ages, what we actually have here is a technological society taking control of its technological development in a way that benefits human prosperity and happiness. Right? We have the technology for post-scarcity, for sustainability. We have the technology to actually work less, to have a more fulfilled life that maybe isn't as fancy, that maybe isn't as technological, that maybe it doesn't have big cities. Right? We, we could go back to smaller cities, for instance, more community-based urban organizations. Certainly, we have the technology to eliminate poverty and the prosperity to do that. So I don't want to say this is just a let's go back to the Middle Ages because it was better. It's actually a technological society redirecting which way development will go in a way that benefits the majority and, and makes more people happy. Ryan, who's John's father, points out the other side of the coin. The Middle Ages were also a time of superstition and ignorance. Quote, myths, religions, fairy tales, a better land above and beyond paradise, all coming back, reappearing again in its own, in his own son. Um, that's what he sees in John. Now, it's not clear if the world that John is visioning is superstitious. In fact, it seems to be more philosophical than that. But Ryan sees John as kind of the beginning of a new dark age. Dick clearly um, well what do I want to say here well it seems to me Dick seems to be preferring this world right and he wants to it's even better than the afterlife in a way and so the visions of the medieval mystics for kind of an, an afterlife or an ideal society seem to be produced by the same physiological phenomena that's causing John's visions. So maybe the medieval mystics were always seeing this alternate reality um, and not really like heaven. Dick predicts kind of a cyberpunk political structure as well in his vision of the post-war reclamation project. There seems to be an unequal power between capital reflected in the United Synthetic Industries Combine and the state, which is the League. In exchange for funding the time travel project, the the United Synthetic Industries Commune gets equal representation in the experimental trip, but also access to the contracts to develop artificial brain technology. But one last thing to say about this story is that it's centered on a very relevant debate about the use of technology. And here, I think, is the core of the story. Kastner tells Ryan that we should not fear the artificial brains because that the technology, or that we should not fear that it will bring back the claws. Quote, Schoenerner's work was not implicitly related to the clause. The development of artificial brain does not imply lethal usage. Any scientific discovery can be used for destruction. Even the wheel was used in the Assyrian war chariots, end quote. Here's a very succinct statement of the problem. Ryan, at the end of the story, burns Schoenerberg's documents so as not to introduce a potentially destructive technology into an idyllic world. In so doing, he sacrifices his life and his family, right? Because there's no, as we know from the commuter, there's no reason to believe that our world life will be the same if we change the past or if we shift to another timeline, another world. So that's it. This is a story ultimately about the use of technology and human control about technology. And I think that's why we get paradise here. We get the utopia because we 
we took technology and, and decided what we're going to use and how. So that's Jess John's World, our sequel to Second Variety, a really important, great story, um, one of his highlights of 1954. So thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, please leave them on the on Podbean or iTunes or send me an email. That's best. Send me an email at 100pagescast at, at gmail.com, and I'll try to respond to your, your thoughts on the air in the next episode. Um, but we'll for now, we'll be continuing through the stories. I'm thinking about going to a novel, but I'm also thinking of just running through these stories because they're so good. 1954 is such a fun year. Uh, the next story will be, though, The Golden Man, which is his Dick's great story on the post-human. Um, so thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. Take me home to the place I belong, West Virginia. Mountain Mama, take me home.